Good evening. Welcome to the Ecology Hour. My name is Tim Bray. Dr. Robert Spies is, of course, on the phone with me from his, what would you say, undisclosed location out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Uh, Bob, would you like to introduce tonight's guest? Yeah, thank, thanks, Tim. Uh, well, we're very, very fortunate to have uh, a real kind of pioneer in North, near shore marine ecology with us tonight, Professor Peter Romundi. He's at the UC Santa Cruz, the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, Institute of Marine Science. Uh, he's also runs, along with Mark Carr, a, a former guest of ours on this program as well, a laboratory there at the Long Marine Lab. Uh, it's a center for ocean health. Peter, welcome to our program. I'm really glad to, to, to have you on. So could you give us a little background on how you got to be interested in marine biology and particularly in, in uh, the kelp beds and intertidal ecology along the Pacific coast? And Sure, I'd love to, and thank you for inviting me. Um, my history is a little bit complicated. I'm from Arizona, which is not exactly next to the ocean, and I went to school up at a little school called Northern Arizona University, mainly because I wanted to ski, and um, and so it was a wonderful place. And I graduated from NAU with a degree in art and philosophy, and I went to law school. In the end, I didn't think that I ended wanted to be a lawyer, and I left and came back to Arizona, and I worked for the National Forest, uh, the National Forester, and on the north rim of the Grand Canyon as a firefighter. Best job I ever had by a long ways. It was wonderful. Um, but one of the key issues with forest fighting for the Forest Service is that it snows. You know, we're at 8,000 feet on the north rim of the Grand Canyon, and it snows, and it snows a lot. There's no fires when it snows. And so during those winter winters, I would go back to Tucson, which is where I was from, and I took classes at the University of Arizona. And one of the classes that I took there was marine ecology, and they had a field trip down to the Gulf of California. And I went down to the Gulf of California and read uh, Steinbeck and Ricketts and the log from the Sea of Cortez, fell in love. And um, just like, you know, it's kind of like, just like a story, right? You fall in love with that, <laughs> with that story. And I uh, met a graduate student down there, and he said, why don't you come and help me with my grad work this next year during the summer? And, you know, it was a hard decision because I loved working for the Forest Service, but I decided to do that. Lived with him down in a bungalow on the Sea of Cortez, did rocky intertidal biology there, did it for the next year, and applied to grad school, got in at the uh, University of California at Santa Barbara, and worked on a PhD there, but spent all, all of my uh, formative time and research time down in Mexico in the Sea of Cortez working on intertidal systems. Did, did a postdoc in Australia uh, at the University of Melbourne in Victoria and came back and got a job up at UC Santa Cruz back in 1996. And I've been here ever since working on kelp forest ecosystems and uh, rocky intertidal systems along the West Coast primarily. Cool. You, you're involved in a lot of different things currently, and, and at your time in Santa Cruz, you've got some really big programs that you've been, yes. uh, PISCO, uh, the MPA monitoring programs, and then you're also on a lot of commissions that uh, inform uh, state government on conservation issues in the, in the marine area as well. That's correct. I, I've done a lot of that. One of the ones that you didn't say, which I think is really going to be important for some of our further discussions is this group that's called Marine. There's a lot of ones that have the same acronym Marine. This one is Multi-Agency Rocky Intertidal Network. 
and it is a it's a huge organization and it goes all the way from Glacier Bay, Alaska down into Mexico and we we have an established network of sites that we sample all the time, you know, every year over 200 sites so that we can get an idea of what the ecological climate is, the environmental climate and how they link together and how they're changing over time. Many of the sites are up in your part of the coastline. You know, we've been working up in uh, all the northern counties for since 1999. And so we have quite a long history up there as well. Cool. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. For listeners who want to kind of keep track of some of these different things that we're mentioning on here, I'll have some links on our website so you can go see what marine is and and uh, the one Bob mentioned, Pisco, and some of these other things. So our website is uh, ecologyhour.wordpress.com. I know that you've been involved in some really uh, uh, interesting things that may be somewhat counterintuitive to to our listeners, but very timely uh, about the effects of these uh, increased wildfires in Northern California. Most people would not associate those with any effects on the ocean, but in fact, you're finding things down in your, your neck of the woods that we need to be concerned about. Yeah, and I think that this kind of story that I'm going to tell you is a story that is repeated up and down the coast in future years. It may have occurred in the past. We might not have known it, but um, as you know, as most of your listeners will know, and you, because you've had similar situations up there and, and California is just prone to these things, is that we had a bad wildfire season in California generally last year. And in the Santa Cruz area, and by Santa Cruz, I mean basically south of San Francisco to the southern point and the Big Sur coastline. It was a it was a terrible year last year. Um, in in August, we had fires basically that stretched from San Francisco down to the southern edge of the Big Sur coastline, and there was evacuations. and um, And we, you know, I was a block away from being evacuated myself, and I lived next to the campus here. And there was there was fires uh, throughout that area, and they seemed to be very intense. And my son just coincidentally works for Cal Fire, and so he'd come back and he would tell me that you know they're burning hot, they're you know they're burning complete. It's super dry in all these areas. The moisture content to the redwoods is really low, and so it's going to be a really bad you know it's going to be a really bad series of fires. And um, and so we started paying attention to them in a way that was a little bit different than you would just because, you know, you're kind of afraid because you're living next to fires and you're worried about evacuations and you're worried about your town, all the things that everyone goes through. We're also worried about the fate of the ecosystems, especially those that might not have been considered in the past. And um, and the reason for this was because, uh, because of the intensity of the fires and the extent and where they were located, there were these gigantic areas that were in catchments that were burning and they were burning hot and they were burning completely. And so CAL FIRE and USGS was giving us a lot of information about the debris that was likely to accumulate and also some of the toxins that were likely to be in the sediment because of these fires. And then we put a few things together and realized that all this stuff, all this debris, all the sediment because of the loss of the vegetation, all the toxins was likely to exit to the ocean. And um, and then we have been working on, our group has been working on this endangered species, black abalone, uh, which used to be the single most abundant abalone species along the West Coast. And then because of a combination of harvest, but mostly because of disease, has been extirpated throughout much of its range. And 
the last remaining healthy population was in the Big Sur coastline. And that's a, that was, we thought of it as kind of this remaining refuge because it's very difficult to get there. So there's almost no take or po through poaching. And really the only threats to that particular species were environmental. And they were, we thought, isolated to things like landslides because it's a very steep coastline. And so landslides are pretty common. And at black abalone, unlike all the abalone that most people are familiar with, live primarily in the intertidal, which is right next to land. Um, they hardly go subtidal at all, as opposed to like red abalone, which, you know, people until recently were able to harvest up there um, on spore take. And so we got super concerned about two things. One was the landslide likelihood was likely to be really high because the vegetation and the Big Sur coastline is burning right to the coastline. And so there's nothing to hold it back. And then the other thing was all these um, very steep catchments had burned. And so we were worried about all the debris coming down. And we thought the, the key issue that would uh, make this much worse would be rainy season. And fortunately, we, I mean, in, this is the only silver lining to what was a terrible year for rain was that we just did not have a big rain year last year. But what we did have came as one of these things, which is called an atmospheric river. It came all at once and it came, you know, in a vicious way. And we had, you know, 16 inches of rain along the Big Sur coastline over the period of a couple, you know, a couple of days. And, wow. uh, and it was, it was remarkably, you know, torrential and, and what we had predicted that might occur is that there would be landslides all over the place, but also all this debris that would flow out. The landslides didn't occur, you know, not as much as we had worried about. We think that that will happen this year if we have more rain. So we're concerned about that. But the debris flows were way worse than anyone had ever expected. Um, it was a combination of the burned material, but also a lot of sediment because there was just no vegetation to hold it in place. And it came roaring down the rivers and the streams and even made some new ones. And it, and it came to the ocean just as, you know, rivers and streams do. And it cut these uh, amazing new uh, ways out because there was so much material. We were having boulders the size of, you know, like buses roll around through these rivers and streams and be deposited out in the ocean the whole kind of geology and geomorphology, which just is the shape of the coastline was altered. There was uh, an amazing amount of sediment uh, that came and was deposited on the shoreline and it became almost like concrete. It was so hard. And we had, fortunately we had anticipated that there might be such a thing. And we had come out and flown drones so that we could get a lot of information beforehand on what the coastline looked like pre-storm. And we had also done quite a lot of sampling in uh, pre-period to establish what the abalone populations were like along these areas. And, um, and when we got back, we were just, we were frankly shocked. It was, it was far worse than we had predicted. About 70% of the remaining population, you know, area where uh, abalone were still healthy was affected. We still don't know how bad it was uh, because we are just, we've been in a rescue operation ever since. And so we're just now getting to the data to figure out how extensive it was. We sent teams out and it was primarily led, and I want to be very clear about that it was primarily led by uh, a new graduate student of mine, a woman named Wendy Bragg, who pretty much took over the whole operation. And she and the teams went out there and made rescues of 
hundreds of abalone, uh, which, as I said before, is an endangered species. They were they were buried and they were unburied with shovels and hands. They were um, crawling along the sediment. Uh, many places we were too late and it just smelled like everything smelled like death. Everything was dead underneath it. The sediment plumes that came out kept moving over time just through the longshore transport mechanisms and burying new places. Um, we couldn't keep up with it really. Um, and as you guys might think, because of you got similar places like the Lost Coast up there, there's a lot of inaccessible areas where we just really, other than the drone imagery, we just don't know what happened in those locations. But in the end, we brought all these animals back to the university here and kept them in, uh, in a location. And uh, we were helped immensely by Department of Fish and Wildlife, who gave us access to all sorts of facilities. And we got special permits to do all this work. And, um, and so we kept them in captivity, all these rescued animals, uh, for five or six months. Some are still there. And um, the, just this week, we started putting them back at Big Sur. And we could not put them back from where they came, which was the goal because from where they came doesn't exist any longer. You know, it's it hasn't returned. If anything, it's gotten worse over time because some of that sediment's moved uh, up and down coast, as it turns out, and it's spread. And so we had to find areas where we could return them that we felt was safe from sedimentation or resedimentation. And, um, and so uh, there's a group that's going out tomorrow to replace or to kind of replace animals but not in the same location but back into these alternative locations and they're all tagged and so we can we're going to try to figure out what the loss rate is of these animals we know that they were they would have died without our intervention but we don't know what the fate of them will be with our intervention and that's a key question to ask is whether intervention is you know ethically correct and whether it's financially viable you know so i, I say ethically because you, of course, you want to go out and save as much as you can. Um, and if they live, then you're doing something quite good. But if you know you, they don't live, then you're taking up resources that might have been better spent doing other things and or maybe using a different approach. And so we're in the process now of figuring out whether this rescue strategy uh, was important and, um, and whether there would be a way to use it in the future when we think this will happen again, which we think is going to be this coming year if there's more rain, because there's there's loads of debris still left, and we didn't have any landslides this year. And in the past, landslides have been more of an issue than debris fields. And one of the reasons why we're very interested in doing this and developing the protocol, so that's one of the other things that is being done right now is to develop a protocol is because we think that this is going to happen again and again in other locations and not, may, not necessarily just for Abilene, but for other things that may be equally as important to, uh, to try to do some rescue for um, as the fire seasons get longer uh, and the hotter and they're followed by these uh, more intense storm events. We do think these debris fields and landslides are going to be a much more common occurrence in the wintertime. This kind of thing is the sort of thing I used to work on with uh the the response of geologic environment to these climate conditions and you've just described the worst case scenario for uh, sediment transport what yeah. we would call a mass wasting event where uh, you don't have enough early rain to stabilize any of the burned area at all and then you get it all at once and you just get a, a gigantic debris flow so yeah 
Do you want to uh, give listeners a little bit of background on the black abalone? I'm not familiar with them, and we don't get a lot of talk about them up here because, you know, everybody knows the red abalone here. Sure. Uh, did we used to have black abalone up this far up the coast as well? Yep, yep. The black abalone is uh, the smallest of the California species. It's a big abalone by worldwide standards, but it's the smallest of the California it gets to maybe seven, seven and a half inches, nothing like the giant reds that you guys would get up there. Um, it is um, largely restricted to the intertidal zone. It's a rocky, it inhabits rocky shores, but it's largely restricted to the intertidal zone. Reds go in the intertidal too. You know, we, we have sampling spots up along the coastline up there, and we oftentimes find lots of reds uh, in the intertidal zone. Um, but blacks uh, are much more common there. They used to range from Punta Eugenia, which is about halfway down the Baja Peninsula, up to maybe Mendocino. Um, they still can get that far, but they're rare. And so the last point where they, you, you can count on seeing them, even before the disease, was about Bodega. And they were never very common north of San Francisco. The population was massive, truly massive. When I first was, was exposed to Black Abalone, I was working with a guy named Bill Duros, who's now the the manager of the West Coast Sanctuaries for the National Marine Sanctuary Group. And we were out on Santa Cruz Island, and they were they were so abundant on Santa Cruz Island that they were stacked one on top of another. They might be five deep. And, um, and that was when the tide was out. So you'd walk across these areas, and there were just mounds and mounds of black abalone. These are five, six, seven-inch animals that were all over the place. And they, they kind of used that architecture to capture kelp which they ate because it was kind of made it pointy and, you know, kind of a way to catch kelp. And, um, and then in, in eight, between 83 and 84, we had a really large Enzo event, an El Nino event, and uh, brought with it warm water. And, and the populations in Southern California started dying, dramatically dying. It went from like 1,000 animals per 10 square meters to one in, you know, months. And they died quickly they died dramatically the tissue was lost and then it was isolated later on that the likely culprit of the of the death was a disease that was caused by a bacterial pathogen called rickettsia and hmm. and that we, the the prevailing thinking was that it was either brought up or made more virulent because of the warm water um, that was coming up from the south during the enzo event that took out basically all the animals in Southern California up to about Point Conception. The mainland had already been, the populations had already been decreased, be, mostly because of harvest. But there is just isn't also very much good habitat along the mainland in Southern California. There's just not that much rock. The islands are full of rock. And as you get north of Point Conception, there's more rock as well. But the islands, with the exception of San Nicolas Island, which is this remote offshore island that is administered by the Navy, uh, that took less of a hit. Um, it was. It's in cooler water. We used to see them on Catalina uh, Island, uh, and near the Marine uh, Center there. Uh, at Wrigley, some of the offshore yep. rocks. Yeah, yeah. You know what's unfortunate, given that story, is that they haven't been seen in uh, Catalina at all for um, probably twenty years, um, and so it was a complete extirpation from these areas. This was in the late '60s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, yeah. they used to be all everywhere. Then, then the the uh, front of the disease stalled out at Point Conception until 1997 and 98, and then we had an Enzo event, another El Nino event, another warm water event, bad one, and it uh, then the front moved up to southern 
to the south edge of Big Sur. And so it took out everything. And one interesting factoid about this is that the only place after that first El Nino where there was uh, the disease was manifest was in the cove nearby Diablo Canyon where there was warm water from the nuclear power plant. And so the disease manifested in that one location up north. And it was probably because there was warm water coming out of the power plant at that point. Um, so it took out all the animals. And at that point, it was uh, considered to be, it was deemed an endangered species uh, and with the fullest level of protection. In fact, just as a matter of reference, it is considered to be more endangered than, say, sea otters, which is a threatened species. Um, and that's because there was this, you know, this prevailing disease that took out anything that came and there has been very little recovery of the population since then. And so the vestiges of the population that were healthy, and by healthy I meant that had not been hit hard by the disease, were up in the Big Sur area and, and around Santa Cruz. So very much reduced area. And so the recovery plans for the species, and any endangered species, ha species has to have a recovery plan under ESA rules, uh, were to uh, that it would expand um, from in part from the Big Sur area. And that would be one area from which it could grow the population, especially to the south, and there might, thereby there might be recovery. So one of the key issues about black abalone, and it's a key thing about abalone in general that maybe people don't know very much, is that they are, they are both, they have males and females, they're separate sex, and they uh, broadcast spawn, which means that they uh, exude their uh, sperm and eggs into the water column, they're fertilizing the water column, but then something very different from a lot of species occurs, which is they're negatively buoyant. The fertilized gametes, the fertilized zygotes are negatively buoyant. And so it's thought that the babies don't go very far. And, um, and that is really a problem in a number of ways. So for black abalone, that they don't go very far, the babies, means that they can't spread very fast, you know, geographically. It's a, it's a problem for up in Northern California with red abalone too, because once the populations have gone down, largely because there's been no kelp, then it's hard for them to recover uh, and to spread also because the the juveniles don't go, the the larvae don't go any don't go very far and so that's a good thing in some ways if you're trying to restore a population by putting out new individuals because their babies settle locally but in terms of them spreading naturally it's very difficult mm -hmm. and that means that they've got really strong genetic structure too so that they may be not adapted to go very mm -hmm. far from where they currently exist. So all those things are really just part of the life history of the species, um, and all abalone species are pretty much the same. But for blacks, um, they had not made much inroad back toward recovery at the time that this hit. And this hit hard. This event hit really hard, and it hit most of the population that was still healthy. So it has become a very problematic thing, both for the ecology of the species, the species itself, and for the law and what to do now with respect to this endangered species. You know, the, uh, there have been work at UC uh, uh, Bodega Laboratory uh, on, was it the pink abalone? White, white abalone. White abalone, that's right. Yep. We had that person, one of those people on our show. Uh, is there any plans or thought of actually trying to do some captive breeding of yes. the blacks to pump up the population? There is, and one of the unfortunate things about this is that we've been actually working with those guys. They're wonderful, by the way, the people at Bodega, and and they've developed this new approach, which is very cool. Um, they've got an ultrasound machine that they can use to actually assess whether an individual abalone now 
you know, has a ripe gonad. And a ripe gonad means it's, you know, capable of uh, spawning. And that's been one of the problems in the past is, you know, you get all these abalone and you want to spawn them, but you don't know who's male. You don't know first who's male and female. You can kind of sometimes know, but you don't know whether they're ripe or not. And ripe just means ready to spawn. And so you almost always have to take more than you would want to from the field in order to get enough to spawn. But they've developed this ultrasound approach that they can scan them just like you would a mother's belly to see whether there's, you know, something inside that they think would be indicative of being able to spawn. Um, and, uh, but the problem with blacks, abalone, is that there has been a few attempts in the past to spawn them. They've, none of them have been successful. So whites actually do a pretty good job of spawning. Reds are really easy to spawn. There's culture facilities all over the place for red abalone. Most abalone species in the world that where it's been tried, it's been super easy. Blacks, not so much. And so one of the things that we anticipate doing over the next year or two is to try that, is to try to develop an approach that would allow for culturing, just as you're talking, Bob, and then outplanting mm -hmm. of individuals to the field to try to uh, enhance the populations that have been depleted. Interesting. Yeah, that we, we did have, uh, we had Dr. Acolino. Uh, oh, yeah, Kristen Acolino. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah. We had her on in 2016 wow. talking about that that project to breed white abalone and uh, it was a really fascinating discussion because uh, uh, it's it wasn't easy <laughs> it took no, them a while to easy. figure out how to get it to go well and it's expensive too i mean that's the other thing you have to culture for you have to keep them at, in captivity for a while you know and opposed to reds where you can sell those guys at the end you know because there's all sorts of uh culturing facilities that do that there's no return on it. i mean you're doing it you know with state funds or whatever funds you can get um, and so there is the, there. It's difficult to do that financially. Can they tell yeah. the males from the females with the? Uh, they're they're trying. So what they're doing is with the whites, and um, is that they're they're doing the ultrasound. They're looking at the characteristics of the image that they get, and then when they spawn them, then they know what they are because the gametes are different colors. Right. And so you can say, okay, well we there we know now that there's a set of individuals that we know were male and female because they spawn, and we also got ultrasounds. Is there something that we can detect within that image that would allow us to retrospectively say, oh, yeah, okay, this is a female. You know, I can see the structure in it, and we are confirming that it is a female because of the spawn. Um, and I don't know if they're there yet, but that's something that they're actively trying to do with whites. So they're trying also to maybe uh, day period, temperature, electrical shock, and all those kind of things to – find out how to get them to spawn? They've got that pretty much wired now. So they've oh, got a, an approch that they can get them to spawn if they're gravid, if they've got yeah. a, you know, a ripe gonad. Right. But okay. they have a good approach now. Yeah. And they're actually culturing and putting things out in the field right now. Yeah. Cool. And so that's your, that's something that you want to do with black abalone as well? I think that I, I personally think, um, and I think the consensus is that with respect to trying to do restoration rather than just replacement. And I contrast those replacements, putting them back because you had some natural disaster and you rescued them. But restoration would be to take an area from which they've been lost and then to reintroduce them. That's really the only, I think, logistically feasible way to do it. And the reason for this is twofold. One is, you know, every time you do a restoration with adults, 
which is one of the uh, possibilities is you take adults from one place and put them in another place. You're reducing the donor population, mm -hmm. you know, and so that's a population that all by, by, you know, the definition we have is an endangered population. So you're removing individuals from an endangered population to to restoration. And, and there's risk associated with uh, the transplantation of any abalone. Uh, the reason for this is a little bit complicated, but, but I think not so much that's not important to say when you actually are trying to remove an abalone, whether it be a red or a black or a pink or a green or a pinto, whatever type, they are, they're hemophiliacs. And so when you remove them, you typically are using some sort of device because they attach so strongly to the substrate, oftentimes an abalone iron. And, and if they get cut, there's a not small chance that they'll die just by bleeding out. And, and transplantation, even if they're not damaged, is stressful and so there is going to be a risk associated with that and so you have to you have to think can we actually do this in a way that is going to be large enough that it's going to make an effect in terms of restoration of this entire geography from which it's been lost by trans transferring adults from one location to another and not not hurting the population from which it's come versus figuring out a way to culture them and take you know a relatively small number of adults and be able to generate lots of babies that can be used to restore these areas. Or yeah, can you can you just get them to spawn and then release the results of the spawn into the water and let them implant? Great, great question, and that's one of the things we're considering because that gets rid of the financial burden too, because you're not rearing them for for a couple of years. And if you could take either the larvae themselves, and we've tried it in these things, you know, like when you frost a cake, you put these, the frosting in like a little squeeze thing, you can squeeze it on it. We put these things in these giant plastic things with the larvae and squeeze it out into the, into the habitat. Um, and, or also just settle them, get them to settle. Settle just means change from a, a larvae into the tiny little baby abalone that's like, you know, two millimeters big and take out plates full of those guys and attach them to reefs. And have them spread out from that, and that would take you know an, an extra two days to get them to settle, and then you could take out the plates themselves, and um, and so that is one of the things that we are proposing to do, which would make it financially more viable than the long-term culturing. There was yeah, some cool. folks, there was some folks at Santa Barbara that were working on abalone when I was down there working on uh, the petroleum seeps offshore. Uh, one of them, I forget his name, but he was. Uh, uh, and I forget the species. He is, he was working with uh, an algal extract to get them yes. to to metamorphose uh, in the laboratory because uh, it would seem to be a challenge in the aquaculture industry. Yeah, I'll help you. His name was Dan Morris. I was a oh yeah, Dan, for Dan yeah, 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 right, right. Yeah, so I learned a lot from. I learned everything I know about abalone, and they were reds working yeah. with Dan Morris in his lab. Yep. And uh, you knew Shane Anderson, of course. I did. He's a collector. Yep. Yeah. And uh, I, I was good friends with him and his wife, uh, uh, Ginny, was doing Jenny. some work with her students down at the junior college out planting uh, young abalone and following up on them. And I'm not sure whatever came of that work. I don't know that either, but I know both of them. And yeah. and that was a big program back then. And, the, the, and they were using Corlin Red Algae. Yeah. to uh, get them and they isolated the molecule there is a molecule that seems to work uh, for abalone to get them to settle it's, it's a, called GABA yeah. and um, so yes now we know a little more about black abalone than we did before uh, and the nature of the crisis uh, yeah. so this is kind of a you know a terrible setup 
You you have a species that has been extirpated from most of its original range, but you have one remnant population that's doing okay, and you can maybe try to very slowly get it to repopulate its range, and then all of a sudden uh, another disaster comes from a completely unexpected direction, uh, and it just happens to hit right in the middle of this remnant population. How how severe is it? I think it's extraordinarily severe. Um, and I, I say that for exactly the reasons that you laid out. You know, it's exactly right what you just laid out. What I don't know yet, uh, just because we simply haven't had the time, is how extensive it was. You know, we know that uh, it could be as much as 70%. I don't think it's that much of the remaining population because I don't think every area in the Big Sur coastline got hit. But we don't know yet. But it, mm -hmm. uh, so we should know by the end of summer because we'll have time. You know, we're putting the animals out right now. So in about two more weeks, all the husbandry work is going to be over and all the worry about them, you know, the water supply and getting kelp to feed them is going to be over. And then it's going to be a period where we re reflect upon the data and uh, collect more information from the drone imagery and figure out just how bad it was. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I feel what you're saying about the 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 stress of the husbandry trying to trying to keep marine invertebrates alive uh, is never easy, and especially intertidal marine invertebrates. That's no. just such a, a difficult environment to replicate in a lab to, to make an artificial environment that they will thrive in is enormously difficult. So uh, I feel for you trying to the stress of having these incredibly valuable individual creatures. <laughs> Uh, and and trying to keep them alive in that in a laboratory environment can't be very easy. It's not, and you know the thing that you really realize is that you know ocean water, in a general sense, is so clean, and um, and when you're trying to replicate that, even in a situation where you've got uh, good water coming in from a good water supply, it's never you, there's always a problem. You know, you just don't know when you're going to get some sort of foul water that comes in or something else. That's my phone now. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, but to repeat, you know, the water supplies that we get from the ocean are almost always better than the ones that we can recreate, you know, by pumping. And, yeah. and so that was one of the big concerns. We would check the oxygen levels every day. We'd check for nutrients, you know, all these kinds of things. We were just worried that one bad day, because they're in captivity, you could kill them all. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's over with. And we're really happy about that. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. <laughs> For listeners who may have just tuned in, uh, we're talking with Professor Peter Ramundi about intertidal ecology, and specifically about the uh, fate of the black abalone uh, and the remnant population down in uh, the Big Sur area of California. Uh, fascinating discussion. One thing I was going to ask uh, is how much of a threat do you think the rising uh, temperatures are, just the ambient temperatures? In the intertidal, we know, for instance, we've, I think a lot of people may have seen it in, uh, in, the, in the news lately about the huge kill-off of uh, uh, mussels and other intertidal invertebrates in British Columbia uh, after the recent heat wave up there. Uh, is that something that uh, we should be concerned about here in the intertidal? Um, yeah, so I think it really depends upon where you are and i don't mean that like where geographically you are although that's important as well 
but I think it matters also where along the coastline you are. So I'll give you an example. A lot of the problems up in uh, up in British Columbia were in these embayments, this, the Salish Sea, the Straits of Georgia, and so on. And the reason for that is uh, something that it will be obvious as soon as I say it, which is when you're in an embayment or in a strait or someplace that's incredibly protected, you don't have waves. And um, and so what happens is, is that you have a bathtub rather than a splashy bathtub. And on the outer coast of those same areas, the, there was not the same issue that occurred. That would have taken an additional event that could also occur but didn't, which is you know low swells. And so one of the things that is problematic is when you have really hot days and it's air temperature more than water temperature that is the problem. And you have tides that are behaving more like a bathtub than a splashy bathtub because then you are really subjecting those animals to you know hours and hours of really hot temperature without being splashed and cooled off and maybe desiccated as well probably desiccated maybe even boiled in some cases because you know you have a black muscle and it's got water in it and and it gets super hot inside of it and so it's really problematic and so i think that the areas that are really really problematic are going to be these embayments and um, and so a place like Humboldt Bay as an example might be way worse off than the outer coast because the outer coast is going to be pretty splashy most of the time the same thing like with tamales or other places is that the bays where you have restricted uh, access of water directly from the coast are, I think are going to be the areas that are going to be the most subject to it Mendocino Coast Audubon Society had a presentation from Dr. Brianna Zuber about it was about intertidal marine life and the title subtitle was it's tough between the tides and that's right a lot of her presentation was about some of the things you just touched on that that these things and they're adapted for it the environment you know is like this for them all the time where they're exposed to the air but the clock is ticking whenever the yes. when the tide goes out and they're exposed in the in the air they can survive for a while and they need to get it to, uh, splashed every once in a while. And, uh, you know, these along our coast are adapted to a foggy, you know, diffuse sunlight uh, environment most of the time. And so all these factors uh, have to kind of balance out, and they mostly do. But every now yeah. and then something goes haywire. Yeah, yeah, and there's this field of ecology that's emerging now. It, people have thought about it for a long time, but now it's kind of got a name which is, the, you know, this ecology of extreme events. And, and it's really uh -huh. when you get multiple events that converge, you know, so you've got something that's rare and then something else that's rare and they occur together, it's really bad. You know, so it's like the fire, which is not common, and the flood, the atmospheric river, which is not common, and they occur one after the other, it's really bad. And the same thing is with heat waves. If you have, you know, a profound heat wave, almost unique, um, that is coupled with, a flat day, then it's going to be catastrophic um, anywhere you go. Um, and they just don't happen very often. But when they do happen, it can have not only big, but long lasting effects on the system. I know that some of, some of the intertidal work that's been sponsored by the, the Minerals Management Service, for instance, in the past, has looked at the recovery times of some of the intertidal. Yep. I know that uh, I was talking to Dane Harden. Um, an old colleague of mine, and, and uh, he was saying the, the work that they did indicated it may take five years for these uh, communities to come back to 
what they were before, or some semblance of what they were before. And yeah. uh, it, with these rare events uh, becoming less rare, uh, you know, what's the chance that, that something's going to be knocked back almost continuously? Uh, yeah. And you get something, something this year, and then three years later, you get a repeat of something like it and knock back, and then you know, on you go. And it becomes a yeah. much more difficult uh, life for the intertidal uh, community. In fact, I think we're seeing that right now. We, we recently, because we have all these sites that I described before, you know, from Mexico up to Alaska, we, we because we have so many years of data, we can look and see how the communities have changed over time, and they have changed. And um, and what we've seen is that in Southern California, as an example, it's exactly what you just said, which is that the communities get hit by things, and they are re then they start the the road to recovery and you can see the communities changing back toward what they were and they get hit again and they go down lower they change more and then they just do not get back to the state that they started it ever because it's not so much the severity which is maybe part of it it is the frequency that is the the problem is that they just it's like one step forward two steps back all the time and um, and that lessens as you go north, but then this this event up north really sets that back, you know, because we had not we had been thinking that the north was going to be more resilient because they did not have these gigantic events or these rare events, and now the north is you know probably going to be set back too. And so there are all these things that are changing, but one of the key things that is problematic because communities have the in, you know kind of the inherent ability to recover. I'm talking about ecological communities now. Um, but not if you hit them too many times. You know, you can hit them, but you got to let them recover, and then they will. But if you keep hitting them, then I think that actually is almost uh, geometric in the sense that it makes it continuously much more worse. You know, it gets worse, and then it gets worse, and then it gets worse, and it becomes harder and harder to come back. Us geologists call those an evolutionary event. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of us may have been uh, guilty of incre incrementalist thinking on climate change, thinking, well, the, the things in the southwest are going to kind of creep up and there'll be less rainfall gradually and the, and, yep. and, and the high pressure zones are kind of creep. And all of a sudden, bang, there's a high pressure zone way up over Washington and Idaho and, yeah. and North, uh, northern Oregon. And just, uh, wow. <laughs> Which didn't move. Yeah. Yeah. Was, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that gets us back to something that uh, Dr. Seidman told us, Bill Seidman, uh, uh, a guest that we had. He was our first guest on the show, actually. And one of the things that he said early on was looking ahead. You know, this was seven years ago. And he said uh, one of the things that people don't realize when we talk about climate change and, and they hear the numbers that we're talking about, you know, two or three degrees centigrade over decades, that doesn't sound so bad. But what's happening is the variability is increasing yeah. in a much greater and much more significant way. It's not the gradual change. It's the extreme events that come that become more extreme and happen more frequently. And basically, you've just confirmed that's, you know, that is now happening in real time right in front of us. Yeah, it is. Go, let's go back now to your, uh, to the situation that you're in. You're not turning the the black abalone loose back where they came from. You're putting them somewhere else because the place well, they came from is not no longer habitable. That's right. It's not, it's no longer habitable by them or anything else. I mean, it will be, um, but it's going to be different because, you know, rock is different from 
sediment. And so for a number of years, we think that's going to be an evolve. And as a geologist, you'll know, you know, that's going to be an evolving area. It's going to erode. And yeah. so that erosive quality will make that habitat basically unsuitable for anything other than soft sediment type things. Mm-hmm. And so the community there will, will not even have the opportunity to recover until that sediment is dislodged and, and, and uh, moved offshore. Um, and so, but in the meantime, it's not only, you know, different sediment, it's actually different tidal elevation. You know, it's, it's a lot higher than it used to be because there's all that sediment on top of it. And some of it is actually more or less out of the biotic zone at this point because it's moved so high. So it's, it's, it has changed. Um, you know, things will probably recover because there is waves in the wintertime and they'll, they'll take out more. But it's going to be a while. And then for the reasons that I talked about earlier, which is the life history of the species and other species too. Remember, it's not black abalone that was lost. It was black abalone and everything else. And so that's going to be a while before that community comes back. It's probably still recovering from some of the impacts of the starfish wasting disease that occurred in 2013-14. Yep. That's absolutely true. Yeah. We studied that too, and and it was just on the it was just in the midst of making a comeback. Sea stars, and you know, got hit again. So it's like oh, these no these you know these frequent these you know it's it's a it's kind of a misnomer to say these frequent rare events, but that's the way yeah. it feels like these are rare events <laughs> in the past, and now they're frequent events, and so you know things don't have really a chance to get back to to normal. Yeah, low probability events, but there's nothing in the statistics <laughs> that says they can't happen one after another. No, no. I, I don't know to the degree to which you're uh, still up to date on what's happening with the starfish populations, but uh, is there anything you can say along those lines? Yeah, I can say a lot because we, we did all, we have these sites everywhere, right? So we really yeah, right. have a very good handle on what's going on. And um, there are some places like uh, Central California where there has been quite a recovery of sea stars. Southern California, much less so. Up where you guys are, you know, up in the North Coast, they had recovered. They're starting. They were doing well, and I'm talking about intertidal ones at this point. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then it's been patchy. But the one that really hasn't made much of a comeback is the one that you were talking about with Cynthia Catton and with Mark Carr about a couple of years ago, which is the giant sunflower star Pycnopodia, and that one has made almost no recovery. And um, now it is up in Alaska making recovery, but along our coastline. And as you know, that is one of the key reasons that people have pointed to for the loss of kelp is the basically the the liberation of urchins from predation by that particular species, and um, and the consequences of that. And so, while there has been a pretty much a resurgence of kelp along the seashore recently. Um, Pycnopodia has not come back. And so that is one of the key concerns. And there's a whole bunch of things that are going on with that, including culturing. So people are trying to culture them to 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 restore populations. That hasn't happened yet, but I mean, the restoration, but culturing is ongoing at this point. So the, do we have any idea what's prohibiting, preventing them from recovering? Is it just that there was too much population loss? There's not enough remaining adults to to repopulate or do they just not have any resistance to the disease? Let me just take one step back. We're not clear even now what actually was killed them. So, Uh, you know, there was a thought that it was a virus and that's still a thought. 
but it's much less certain than it was at first, you know, and, <laughs> and like a lot of things, um, mm-hmm. the problem with marine systems is that there are bacteria and virus, viral particles everywhere. And one of the things that's just true, especially is that when something gets stressed or damaged, they become more susceptible to infection. And so we're never really sure whether the things that we're measuring, bacterial and viral, um, are the consequence of a problem or the problem itself. And um, it could be either way. So we're not sure what caused it. Um, What we do think is that, at least in part, the problem with Pycnopodia is isolated from other species because other species have come back, have started coming back much more. Yeah, we have lots of ochre stars all over the rocks right. now. Yeah, that's yeah. they made a splendid comeback, but Pycnopodia not so much. And we don't know whether they got taken out much more completely, which I think personally, you know, having dove and saw how bad it was when the Pycnopodia were dying. I mean, they would go from healthy to a pile of bacteria in literally two days. Um, and so it was, it was remarkably bad for them. But um, so maybe that, that they're just so rare that they never get together and they can't really reproduce if there's not enough of them around. And so it's going to take a while or the disease might still be active in the subtitle and affecting them. We just don't know. There was some talk of uh, a shift in the genetics of some of the uh, affected uh, sea stars and yep. the ones that were coming in younger seemed to be more resistant to some of the bacteria. Is that story held up or is there any follow-up on that? There are people that are working on the genetics, mostly out of Davis, UC Davis, yeah. um, that are looking at the genetics, uh, the genetics uh, signatures of the individuals prior to and post disease to see whether there's a change in the, in the, gene, the genetic frequencies or the gene frequencies of those individuals. And um, I don't know the story on that, but, the, but there is work that is being done on that. Okay. So what's next for you with the with the abalone and the sea stars? Where are you going next? Well, the abalone, we're, we expect next year to be, uh, you know, this is one of those awful things to feel this way, but if the rainfall is normal or above normal, which is what we not want for almost every other reason, um, yeah. then I think it's going to be bad because there's so much, I guess I'll use the word latent, but there's so much latent, debris and a landslide material that is just waiting for, you know, enough rain to release that I think it will be, you know, it'll be bad next year as well. Uh, We'll be better prepared to do stuff because we've done it once. And so that's, that's helpful. Uh, Beyond that, I think that there is going to be a move to start culturing like we talked about before um, for two reasons. Now it used to be one, one was for restoration, but right now it might be to, replace individuals back into locations from which they're lost in the healthy population. And so that that's those are the two key things with the black abalone. With, with sea stars, it's mostly at this point a, ma- a matter of following them for us and to see how the populations are responding in the sea of sea stars and to see whether the communities, the ecological communities, return to the states that they were prior to the disease. They haven't yet. And um, they should, with sea stars coming back and taking up their role as predators. I'm talking mostly the ochre star right now. Uh, and so they sh- they should. And this has happened in the past before these sea star wasting events. And when the sea stars came back, the communities returned. But again, because of these more common events that occur, we're not really sure. And we're not mm-hmm. really sure when the next sea star wasting event will be. 
Uh, we hope, you know, it'll be another decade or two. There are usually 20 or so years in between events. And so um, hopefully that will stay the course and we won't have another one too soon. <laughs> when I was working uh, off UC Santa Barbara, we were diving in about 60 feet of water and working on the natural petroleum seeps. And uh, we, we used to occasionally, and I think it was mostly in the uh, El Nino years, we'd occasionally see sea stars that were uh, undergoing that kind of typical wasting. They would just turn yep. into a pile of mush quickly and uh, yep. this white fungus-like material on them and they were gone. That's the problem is that with sea star wasting is that that same thing that you just described occurs all the time, not never super commonly, but it occurs enough that you think, well, is that just normal stress like hot water, or, you know, particularly they got infected another way or they got damaged, or is it a new event that's that's occurring? And you just don't know because by that point, everything's loaded with bacteria at that point. So you scan it and you think it's loaded with bacteria. You know, that's what's killing them is the bacterial loads. But what got them to that point? You know, what got mm. them to the weakened condition? And is it going to be a disease event where everyone gets weakened and so they get killed off by bacteria? Or is it going to be, you know, one out of 100, um, in which case it's just normal? If it's a virus, it, we've all become virologists in the last yeah. year and a half, right? Um, sure. yeah. You know, one thing, <laughs> if we've learned anything at all, we've learned uh, how rapidly and continuously viruses mutate and that yeah. the virus you had last year isn't the same virus you've got this year so if it's that and you know we study the ones that affect humans pretty intensively but we probably don't have a great deal of background information on the normal viral viral load of a pycnopodium yeah the only thing in our favor is that you know rarity is the solution for these types of infectious infectious pathogens so long as they're isolated to you know, that particular species, you know, like if it's a, if it's a Pycnopodia pathogen, Pycnopodia is so rare right now that it seems likely that the viral, whatever it is, would be mm -hmm. still in the population. But if it can go among different hosts, then it's really problematic. Mm -hmm. Normally at this point in the interview, I ask their guests if there uh, is some sources for more information uh, and also what, uh, what you have in mind for future research and uh, what we can look forward to talking to you about maybe in another couple of years. Sure. Um, the best place to look is our website. We've got tons of information about everything. And it's marine, M-A-R-I-N-E dot U-C-S-C dot E-D-U, which is a really straightforward one. It's marine at U-C-S-C dot E-D-U. And, um, and going into the future, one of the things that we're doing right now, and it's really cool in a lot of ways because it's taking advantage of assets, data assets that were just unimaginable in the past, which is we've been every, when we go out and sample, we take out uh, surveying instruments and we get the tidal heights of everything that we sample. So we've got millions of observations of tidal heights. So as an example, you might have you know a mussel that is that this high and and a barnacle of this high, and algae of this high, and an abalone of you know some height. And by height, I mean height above what we call the, the tidal datum. And so some of your listeners may know this, but everything along the West Coast is measured with respect to mean low, low water, which is the mean of the two low tides per day over the course of a year. And zero is the value. And so we've got, we have the tidal heights of every organism that we see. And as I said, we've got millions of observations along the whole West Coast. And then because of the, the uh, unbelievable increase in the data sets associated with remote sensing, 
we also have the tidal elevations of the coastline. So the geomorphology is now mapped along the entire coastline of, of California and probably Oregon and Washington as well. We're restricting our work right now to California. And so we're going to overlay those two data sets, meaning the tidal heights of every organism on the tidal heights of the emerge of the coastal zone to build a sort of an application that will allow us to figure out what tidal sea level rise will do not just to the you know to the coastline but to the organisms of the coastline who are going to be the winners and who are going to be the losers because sometimes when you raise up the sea level you're going to actually gain more rock and produce less sand you know if you're close to coast and, and it might be the opposite um, in other locations and that will allow us to make strategic decisions about what places are going to be important in the future with respect to particular species and allow us to have, make much more, I think, informed management decisions about things like MPAs. As an example, would you really want an MPA that's designed to protect seagrass in an area that will have no seagrass because of the elevations in you know 20 years? That's just as an example. So. This is one of those great things that is only made possible by the the data assets that are available because of technological advances more than anything else. And so we're going to consolidate those, produce an applet that will allow us to make those sort of projections. That's our next big project. Very cool. You think about these intertidal organisms, and I think of these uh, above the tide line with respect to birds. You know, the most mm -hmm. birds are scattered over the landscape, but there are some like our iconic. Uh, black oyster catcher of the rocky shoreline yeah. and you know their entire distribution is at most a couple of hundred yards wide yeah. you know they just occupy this extraordinarily narrow little tiny strip of land uh, that just happens to be several hundred miles long yeah it's a ribbon tiny ribbon <laughs> a teeny tiny little ribbon it's a line yeah. when you draw it on a map and so that makes them extremely susceptible to these kinds of changes that you're talking about, almost as if they were a, an intertidal organism themselves. Yeah. It's one last thing I just got to bring up. Years ago, someone asked me, well, how much intertidal is there in California? Intertidal habitat, right? Rocky intertidal habitat. Yeah. Because everyone knows it. All the kids, that's where they go when they're doing their field trips. And as you say, there are species that depend upon it. And when I calculated it, it's by far the most rare habitat in California. It's somewhere between five and 15 square miles in the entire state wow. of Cal. Is because it's no a kidding. Tiny, yeah, tiny, narrow little ribbon. Uh, you know, it's everywhere. It's along the whole coastline, but you wouldn't see it if you looked at it from, you know, from outer space. It's way too narrow. So the typical rocky shoreline is no more than 30 meters wide. And, um, and so, you know, it's just, there's just not much of it. Do you happen to have an estimate of how many species depend on it? I know that in our species list, which is, you know, pretty comprehensive, we have at least 660 species that we have sampled in California. That live in that 10 in to 15 square miles. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. yeah, that's amazing. Well, Dr. Ramundi, thank you very much. It's been a fascinating discussion. It's been thank super fun much, for me, Pete. too. Thank you. Great, great. Anytime. This has been a blast. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willitson Dukaya 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.